Hello, I'm Mark and this is the Fast Track Impact podcast where we look at how researchers can become more productive and use their work to achieve real world impacts. So I'm recording today's podcast uh, from a hotel room. I've been doing some training. Um, uh, talking slightly quietly because it's uh, just gone 10 o'clock at night and I uh, don't want to keep uh, any early bedders uh, awake in the neighbouring rooms. Uh, I'm recording this on a fairly exciting day for myself. I signed off today on the proofs for uh, my next peer-reviewed journal article, which I have ambitiously called A, a Theory of Participation. Uh, and today in the podcast, I want to shortcut you to five practical lessons and uh, the the theory behind why stakeholder and uh, and uh, and public engagement sometimes works and sometimes does not. And I believe that there are some very generalizable things that you can do that no matter how challenging the context you're trying to work in, that you can almost certainly guarantee that you will increase the chance that your engagement with stakeholders and publics actually leads to beneficial outcomes and to impact, rather than falling flat on its face uh, or causing unintended consequences. Uh, this was a paper that I uh, have been developing for a number of years now. So there's been a lot of thought that has gone into this. Um, a close colleague of mine told me that uh, it was an impossibility. You can't create a generalizable theory of participation. Uh, I will put uh, the link to the article so you can uh, download it in the show notes uh, and you can decide for yourself whether this was a misjudged attempt or whether it's useful. My hope is that it's going to be useful. I'm not going to bore you with any of the, the detailed social science behind this, uh, but I really do want to communicate what I believe will be really powerful keys to enable you to get the most out of your engagement. Before I do that, though, I'm going to introduce uh, this week's tip of the week. This week's tip uh, is, in fact, not just one tip. It is uh, one, two, three, four, five, six different tips, and they're not from me. Uh, as I've mentioned before, I am interviewing some of the world's most productive, in fact, the world's most productive researchers. Uh, these guys coming from multiple disciplines from all over the world have some real gems of advice. And here are a few of my favorites so far. Uh, the first is make every two hours count, whether for work or play. Uh, Guo Zhen Huang said, and I'm quoting him here, I manage my time by dividing it into two hour blocks, including holding group meetings, reviewing papers, discussing with students, listening to music and watching TV. My next tip is uh, about breaking every writing task down into different sized chunks that you can work on independently and then match those chunks to your availability rather than waiting for a free day to write because it might never happen. This is a tip that I've, uh, I've talked about before uh, and expanded on in the previous, uh, previous episode. The third one is uh, make every second of work time count when you're in the office if you don't want to be working when you get home. Have a small number of high priorities that you prioritise every day. Mike Lai told me, 
PhD students have to come first. Teaching is my major priority. Number two is publishing in top journals. I have a small number of high priorities that I make sure I prioritise every day. Make a strategic plan for your day. Uh, and don't do a task that you should do, like email, as long as there is a more important unfinished task linked to your core goals. Freddie Blabjerk uh, said, I start work before 7am and I work without emails or distraction, making strategic decisions about goals for my day and getting any urgent and important things done efficiently. And finally, also from uh, Freddie, prioritise being a good collaborator so opportunities continue coming your way. He said, my top priority is giving feedback to colleagues as a co-worker quickly and not delaying my part in the work. And then people want to continue working with me. These are simple but beautiful pieces of advice uh, and I'm certainly uh, taking heed. Uh, worth rewinding and listening to some of these, uh, maybe even quoting some of them. Uh, very useful indeed. So my tips of the week. So uh, as most of you know, uh, I work on a number of different issues and across a number of different disciplines in addition to my research on knowledge exchange, participation and research impact. Many of the things that I work on, many of the issues certainly are environmental issues. Um, and so I've focused this theory on uh, trying to understand what is it that makes uh, stakeholder and public engagement work uh, in terms of outcomes for the people that you engage with, importantly, uh, and outcomes for the natural environment. Uh, I believe that the principles behind this are generalizable well beyond this, but I wanted to give this an anchor uh, in some kind of concrete context where I had empirical evidence. At the heart of a lot of the work that I do is, is trying to understand how it is that we can better engage with the public and with stakeholders like industry, government, non-governmental organisations, people like you and me, uh, in the co-generation of new ideas so that we can together hopefully solve some of the hugely challenging global issues that we face today. Things like food security, land degradation, climate change. Those are certainly some of the issues I've worked on. Uh, I think that trying to understand uh, how we can better engage people with research and engage people in joint pathways to impact is important for two reasons. First, I believe that it's a democratic right for us to be involved in decisions, uh, in particular decisions about the natural environment that, whether directly or indirectly, affect us all. Uh, and the decision makers, whether they be governments or businesses, shouldn't be able to take decisions that affect our use of the natural environment without first talking to us. The second reason that I think it's important that we understand how we can better engage is that there is fairly strong evidence now that when you ask people what they think, you often end up with better decisions that actually work on the ground because you've got better information inputs. And you've got the support of the people who actually will help you to implement rather than oppose your decision. I think that 
work in this area has been frustrated by a lack of clear thinking. Uh, no one has explained why it is that some participatory processes work, leading to beneficial outcomes for the natural environment or whatever other thing that the person is working on, building trust, empowering the marginalised, helping the people that, that engage with you. And at the same time, other processes crash and burn, weakening environmental protection, inflaming conflict, uh, and only empowering the, the rich elites, the privileged few. As I said before, the, the problem with this is that it's leading to a, a real crisis of faith and, and the idea that we should be involving people in the research process and that we should be trying to work together with publics and stakeholders to generate impact. Uh, people are suggesting, well, hey, why invest that time, that energy, that money, when I can just do this simple from the top down and save a whole load of time and hassle in the process? Without clear thinking, however, I think that we're in danger of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So why does public and stakeholder engagement work sometimes and not at other times? I'd like to answer this question in a couple of different ways. First, I want to answer it uh, by trying to learn from experience. Uh, learning from my own experience uh, through a couple of stories, which I will then use to illustrate the theory uh, that, that comes. And then, secondly, learning from the literature. Uh, so I'm going to tell you two fairly brief stories. Uh, one uh, of an experience where I tried to engage with stakeholders and it failed, and one where it worked. Uh, and of course, the question is going to be why, which I hope will become clear when I apply the theory to these, uh, these examples. Uh, the first is an example that I've uh, highlighted in uh, in my book, the uh, the, Re the research impact handbook, um, and it is probably still uh, today uh, one of, if not the most uh, embarrassing uh, professional experiences of my career so far, uh, where um, uh, we had a workshop with uh, hill farmers, conservationists, uh, a real wide range of people. I had carefully selected them. I'd done interviews with people, research interviews, um, and on the basis of that, I'd selected uh, 12 people that we invited to the workshop. Uh, we had a bit of a problem in that uh, I had uh, incorrectly costed our facilitator. Uh, they told me their day rate. Uh, I called them up and tried to engage them, and they said, yes, so that will be uh, at least three days' work, and I didn't have enough money. So for the money I did have, I worked through my networks, and we found a facilitator who had uh, been working in an EU country. Uh, this was an American national. Uh, and uh, he came over, so this is a, that was a, a detail, it was an important detail, so you'll discover. <laughs> uh, he came over to, to the UK from this European country uh, and uh, helped to facilitate the, the workshop for us. Um, first thing I noticed was that there were in fact 15 people around the table, not 12 people. And my first mistake was to not find out who the additional three people were. Uh, the second thing that uh, worried me was that um, uh, our facilitator didn't really do very much. Um, everyone started talking. Uh, the same old arguments came out. People started getting uh, a bit upset, a bit heated. Fingers started getting pointed. Voices uh, were raised. And the whole time, our facilitator just stood there with a, a thoughtful expression, listening to everyone. 
the uh, the time for the break came and went, and still uh, he was just listening, and um, uh, and the argument was getting more and more heated. Uh, I was a PhD student at the time, uh, wasn't very confident, but I said, guys, let's call time on this, uh, have a break. And I went to our facilitator, so uh, so what's going on? And he said, yeah, one slight problem. Uh, I'm an American who's lived all my life in, in Europe, and uh, all these guys are talking in thick Yorkshire accents, and I can't understand a word anyone's saying. Um, uh, we went from there uh, back in, and uh, we had a plan B. And I said, "Look, let's just go with uh, with these sticky notes uh, ideas. So write things down, stick them on the wall. Great. Uh, you don't need to do much talking. You, you'll be fine." So we did that. Um, but now the three guys uh, who were uh, gate crashing the workshop just sat at the end of the table doing nothing. Everyone else was doing it. I went to them and said, so uh, this is how you do it, explained it, do you understand? Yep. Um, but still, they did nothing. Came back to them. Now everyone else had finished, and I'm asking them, so this is what you do, do you understand? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we understand. And so I'm like, why are you not doing it then? And they explained uh, to my mortification that they were illiterate, they couldn't read or write. Um, I didn't know who they were, I hadn't done my research on them. Um, to be honest, it hadn't even really occurred to me that this was a possibility. Uh, and, um, and they were then publicly humiliated in, in front of their, their colleagues uh, by, by my question. Uh, and so, of course, we went to uh, an early lunch, I went to my facilitator. So, uh, do you happen to have a plan C that uh, doesn't involve talking, reading or writing? Uh, and of course, his answer was no. Uh, so without any training as a PhD student, I, I then facilitated the afternoon uh, as best I could. Um, and, um, and, and away we went. Now, uh, in the end of this, uh, we managed to pull this one back from the brink uh, because I'd interviewed everyone and everyone trusted me enough. Uh, they gave us a, a second chance, uh, but none of those people thanked me. Uh, and in a, a round robin at the end where people gave us their feedback, they told us in very frank terms, uh, please don't do that to us again. Um, uh, it, was, it was fairly excruciating for everyone. Uh, no one enjoyed it, least of all me. My second story fasts forward a few years. Uh, I now have facilitation training, but uh, this is now a workshop where uh, I know that I do not have the independence to be able to facilitate. Uh, this is a workshop of knowledge exchange uh, academics and professionals from across the UK. Uh, and we're going to write a paper out of it. Uh, I'm going to be uh, perhaps lead author on this paper. So we've got a, a professional facilitator in now uh, working with us. Uh, and we costed it properly this time. It cost us a lot of money, in fact. Uh, £8,000 for a two-day workshop, which was fully designed uh, and amazingly facilitated, worth every penny. Um, uh, in this case, uh, we had uh, done an analysis of, of exactly who we wanted to be there again, uh, and the right people turned up, uh, no, no gate crashes this time. Um, but uh, the, there still was uh, a problem, uh, uh, which was that uh, the most powerful person in the room stood up, who was in fact the director of the funding programme that was funding the workshop, who had a personal interest in what we were doing, uh, and he proceeded to explain that he thought we'd got it all wrong, that uh, the focus should be on something very different. Um, and um, uh, and this, was, this was his opinion about what we should be doing instead. Um, uh, I was somewhat shell-shocked. Uh, I just introduced the day and was handing over to our facilitator, and I just kind of stood there in silence, uh, wanting the ground to swallow me up uh, yet again. 
my facilitator, on the other hand, was not phased by this at all. Uh, she simply said, okay, so uh, we're going to have uh, something called open space this afternoon. Uh, now, uh, as a facilitator, she had uh, identified uh, pre the workshop uh, sessions which could either be taken out or contracted in various ways if things didn't go according to plan in terms of our timings. She'd uh, worked out that uh, here was a buffer session. She'd taken it out in her mind, um, and now she was saying, uh, that in the break, if there was anyone else who thought we'd missed something important, that uh, they should write those topics on sheets of paper. Uh, and during the lunch break, people could then sign up. The sessions that um, were most popular would then run as roundtable discussions. The proposer would facilitate them uh, and they'd have an hour. Uh, embarrassingly, the, the uh, director of the funding programme didn't get enough people to sign up to his. It didn't run. Uh, luckily, he had the humility to accept that perhaps he hadn't got it right. Um, but more importantly, uh, there were a bunch of other people who had spotted some really important, crucial things that we had completely missed and forgotten uh, that weren't even on our radar in many cases because these were people from very different disciplinary backgrounds to ours. And in fact, that one hour of that two-day workshop was perhaps the most useful hour of the entire workshop. Uh, so two stories. And I'm going to revisit these towards the end of the of the podcast uh, of of the episode, just to try and distill for me why I think uh, one failed and one succeeded, based on the, uh, the 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 theory that I'm going to spell out for you. So the second way I want to to come at this, uh, not just from my own experience, but now actually looking at the literature, that broad experience from across the world through time. Uh, of people who've tried this stuff um, and through experience have worked out what works, what doesn't work. Um, uh, so some of the stuff that we're going to try and distill this, this, this theory from. Uh, and I want to start by looking at literature on um, typologies of engagement. So this is different ways of describing the kinds of engagement that are theoretically possible. Um, uh, I suspect many of you will have heard of Cheryl Arnstein's Ladder of Participation. Um, if not, have a look at my paper and you can, uh, you can see exactly what we're talking about here. Uh, and a metaphor has real power, and this is a metaphor that has stuck around since 1969 when she published uh, the, the Ladder. Uh, and according to this ladder of participation, you're always trying to aim towards the top rungs of this ladder and the highest possible level of engagement. Uh, so you're engaging really deeply and giving as much power and a control to your stakeholders as, uh, as you possibly could. Now, in the, the first case, uh, my uh, workshop with hill farmers and gamekeepers and conservationists, uh, in theory, we were fairly close to the top of the, the ladder. This was a scoping project that we were using to delegate power to the people to help identify the problems that they wanted us to solve through the research so we could then work in partnership with them to develop our funding bid and to actually then generate solutions with them to their problems as part of the main research project. So, so we're fairly high up the ladder. In contrast, my workshop with these knowledge exchange specialists was in fact fairly far down the ladder. We'd got the funding, we were going to publish a research agenda, we just wanted their help shaping it. And although it was very much in consultation mode, 
Uh, I would argue this was not tokenistic, as Arnstein would describe it. Uh, ultimately, uh, all of the guys who were there ended up as co-authors on the eventual paper. Yeah, uh, so clearly, based on this, you can see that you need to do a lot more than just select the right level of engagement if you want this stuff uh, to work. And I think that the problem is that everyone is focused on trying to develop new typologies that better describe the different types of engagement that you can do. And they mix up these descriptions of how to do engagement with explanations of why it is that engagement works. And so you, know, you just have to choose uh, a better type of engagement and then it'll work. Uh, and it's a bit of a tick box kind of uh, approach. So um, I'm going to propose my own theory that hopes to, to, to try and disentangle the stuff and make some sense of, of this. Um, and to try and do this, uh, I want to first of all try and uh, disentangle uh, the description of the types of engagement that are possible. Uh, so you've got that menu and you can choose from a bunch of different descriptions, but I want to disentangle that then from the explanations of why it is that each of those different types of engagement works, because I do not believe that any single type of engagement will always work for any kind of reason. Uh, it, it really does vary. Uh, and it varies according to other things uh, other than the type of engagement that you are uh, trying to do. So um, first of all, here is my descriptive typology. Uh, and in an attempt to try and dislodge the ladder metaphor from people's minds, uh, in this paper we're proposing a wheel of uh, participation. Uh, I have borrowed this. Uh, it was published in the Grey Literature uh, a number of years ago, and in my review in 2008 I tried to suggest this as a perhaps a more healthy uh, metaphor. Um, but I think the problem was it didn't really catch on because there wasn't really any theoretical rigour behind it. Um, so my hope is that this paper is going to more firmly plant uh, this wheel of participation in people's imagination uh, so that, uh, that you can hopefully more effectively find the right type of engagement for your particular context uh, and purpose without getting any false promises about whether or not it's likely to work simply based on the type of participation that you, uh, that you chose. So let me try and paint a picture of this wheel of participation. Uh, it is a circle, as you might imagine, it's a wheel, uh, but there's a wheel within a wheel. Uh, it operates kind of like a, a dial, uh, so you can twist the outer wheel and you can twist the inner wheel to get different combinations uh, of uh, the mode of participation um, and uh, the agency of participation, so uh, who initiates uh, and facilitates the, the process. <coughs> Uh, uh, on the inner dial, you've got these different modes of participation, so from communication to consultation. So communication kind of being one way from uh, from us to them, perhaps as, as researchers to stakeholders or publics. publics. Uh, consultation being one way again, but now uh, from uh, publics or stakeholders to us as we gather information. Uh, deliberative, where we're now uh, discussing, uh, learning as two-way engagement. Uh, and then co-productive, uh, where you're actually coming up with new ideas collaboratively together uh, and finding solutions and implementing solutions together. Um, so 
those are the modes. Uh, you twist those around and you can then combine them with two different forms of agency and those agencies are top-down uh, where this is facilitated uh, and initiated from us as researchers or other uh, agencies, uh, perhaps external to, the, to that stakeholder community or, or, or public, uh, or it can be bottom-up. Uh, so this is now initiated by the people, for the people and facilitated by them as well. Uh, and that means that you can then get four different uh, <coughs> idealised combinations uh, or types of participation. So, for example, you can have top-down, one-way communication and or consultation, where your engagement is initiated and led by an organisation uh, with decision-making power uh, or perhaps by the researcher. Uh, consulting publics uh, and stakeholders, but retaining decision-making power or simply communicating decisions to them. Now, this wouldn't typically be considered participation uh, by most forms of uh, definition, uh, but, uh, but this is something that I think we do need to consider and consider seriously, uh, certainly for public engagement uh, types of uh, event, uh, but also in some stakeholder engagement settings as well. Um, so, for example, a decision might have been made, a law has been passed, um, if you don't know about it, you're going to get fined. Uh, this is about now communicating that rather than creating false expectations that there's a deliberative process and you can change it. It's a law, it's been passed, you can't change it, whether you like that or not. Uh, and this is now a, a responsibility on us to simply uh, communicate. Uh, what I'm trying to do now is to try and get rid of the value judgments that are often associated with this, that, that say you shouldn't ever do that one-way communication piece or just consult. Uh, and certainly you shouldn't be doing that from the top down. Uh, but I think that there is a time and a place for this. It's about your purpose and your context. The second of these idealised types uh, of engagement uh, is top-down deliberation and or co-production where your engagement now is initiated and, and led from the top down uh, by an organisation with decision-making power or by the researcher uh, that is engaging with publics and stakeholders in two-way discussion about the decision uh, and as a result then enabling that decision-making body uh, or the researcher to better understand and, and explore suggestions with stakeholders prior to making their decision and as a result hopefully making a better decision. Uh, a more co-productive approach to this would be um, including deliberation, but the decision and how it's going to be implemented is now jointly developed and owned uh, by the stakeholders and the publics and uh, those who are facilitating the, the process. But uh, despite all this, it is still the responsibility uh, of that lead agency, the researcher, uh, an environmental agency perhaps, to actually then implement, uh, fund and make the decision happen. The third of these idealised uh, types of engagement is bottom-up, one-way communication and or consultation. Uh, and this might seem like a misnomer. How can you actually have bottom-up, one-way communication and, and consultation? It just doesn't work, surely. Uh, and I'm going to suggest that there are actually... Uh, Play, there is a place and a time, and it is actually a possibility. So this is where engagement is initiated and led by stakeholders or, or publics. Uh, but now they are communicating one way with decision-making bodies, uh, often via grassroots networks, social media, things like that, 
to try and persuade those decision-making bodies, uh, the authorities or whoever, to open their decision-making process up to scrutiny and to engagement. Alternatively, this kind of engagement might occur when stakeholders or publics gain enough power, uh, typically through things like mass mobilisation uh, of public opinion, stakeholder groups, to actually overrule previous top-down decisions. Those leading the process may consult with publics and stakeholders to, uh, to better understand and represent the views of the communities that they're trying to represent and to demonstrate buy-in and support and so increase their capacity, their power to influence the decision makers or overturn the decisions that they're trying to influence. Finally then, you've got bottom-up deliberation and co-production. So this is uh, what Aaron Simon would say is, is at the top of the ladder, what people typically try and aim for. Uh, and this is often reported in the literature, uh, but I think there are actually uh, uh, very few actual real examples of this, uh, this actually happening. So in theory, uh, if this happens, what you're seeing is engagement that is actually genuinely initiated and led by stakeholders and publics rather than uh, by researchers or by other kinds of decision-making bodies or authorities. Uh, and these communities then engage in two-way discussion about the, de the decision uh, with other relevant publics and stakeholders and then come to uh, a decision. That decision could be made and implemented by a single or a small group of stakeholders based on knowledge gained through deliberation, or the decision could be co-produced, owned and implemented by the whole group. Uh, of course, there are a lot of things in between. The, these are sliding scales. This is a, a dial which you twist, um, and of course, as you twist these, uh, in theory, you will find that there are things that take place in the gaps. Um, this is trying to simplify it so that, uh, that you can see that there are some very clearly different types uh, of engagement that you can choose from, uh, and now your job is to try and match uh, this type to your context and to your purpose without putting any value judgment on whether one is better than the other, uh, one is more right uh, or appropriate than the other, uh, and whether one is more or less likely uh, to work. So I've tried to draw to an extent so far on my own experience and uh, a bit of experience from the literature to try and frame this. But now let's move on to the actual theory of participation itself and my explanation, at least, for, for why things sometimes work, why, why things sometimes fail. What we're trying to do now is to decide on the type of engagement that's best for our purpose and our context using the wheel of participation. And then once we've chosen that, to try and work out how we can maximise the likelihood that the type of engagement we have chosen actually works and benefits the people who we engage with uh, and actually achieves the outcomes that we want. For example, in my case, uh, environmental benefits. So to answer this, I started uh, a number of years ago by studying examples of engagement from around the world. I've had a, a long-running collaboration with a colleague from Lufana University in Germany, Jens Neivig, uh, and he's led a, a meta-analysis of uh, over 300 engagement processes uh, around the world. Uh, and distilled evidence from those. In parallel with that, uh, I studied 20 of his processes in depth, uh, looking at a single process as it was implemented across 11 different countries, and then looking at very different approaches to engagement in two countries, which were very similar uh, and facing very similar issues. 
Uh, and what we're trying to do with this is to disentangle the, the role of context from the role of design uh, and to ask the question, are there certain design principles that can enable you to design a process that will work no matter how challenging the, the context? We published our results um, uh, end of last year, I believe. It's uh, on my website, profmarkery.com, uh, under featured articles. In the paper that I uh, signed off on today, I'm trying to draw on a much wider literature as well as uh, our own empirical uh, analysis. And ultimately, when you look at all of this empirical evidence, uh, combine that then with uh, my own experience and uh, my reading of the literature, I think there are four key variables that can explain why engagement either works or fails in any given context. Get these four things right, and you're likely to be able to make engagement work with some of the most challenging individuals, groups, and situations. So here goes four factors that in theory explain the variation in outcomes from different types of engagement. And my four factors are context, design, power, and scale. So first of all, I think there are a number of socioeconomic, cultural and institutional contexts that can really influence the outcomes of engagement. Context is my first factor. Examples of specific contexts that can really affect the success of an engagement process includes whether or not there is already a culture of participation. So I'm doing some work at the moment um, in former communist countries in Eastern Europe uh, and discovering, uh, as I have when I've worked there before, that uh, participation uh, can sometimes be challenging in a context where culturally you're not used to being asked for your opinion uh, and debating with, with others. Um, it also varies in relation to people's former experiences of engagement. A key uh, challenge in context is uh, contexts where people have had really bad experiences of uh, engagement. Uh, so, in theory, the kind of thing that uh, I subjected those poor people to uh, in, the, uh, in the Peak District uh, is going to significantly uh, uh, impede the likelihood of them actually coming back for more uh, when it's been that painful the first time. Why would you come back for more? Um, and the other contextual factor that, that you need to think about is resources. Uh, if you don't have the resources to employ a professional facilitator, to do things right, uh, it's going to be a lot harder to, to pull this off. Uh, of course, some contexts are more challenging than others. Uh, and if you want to, your engagement to succeed, you do have to really understand your context and do everything you can to adapt to your context. The second of my four factors then is uh, about design. Uh, and I think that there are a number of process design variables that can increase the likelihood that engagement actually leads to desired outcomes across pretty much any context. Now, this is controversial. Uh, I've co-authored this paper with a number of people, but in particular, the, the main contributor to this is a, a PhD student of mine, Stephen Vella. 
Um, in his PhD thesis, he is focusing much more as an applied anthropologist on the role of context, and he really takes issue with the distinction that I'm making here and argues that uh, the context is king uh, and that it pervades all of the rest of this. And I think he's probably got a point. Um, what I'm trying to do here is to try and differentiate uh, the key things that you need to think about. And I do think that design is important. Uh, and if you get this right, it can be a really powerful uh, enabler. There are a few things that we know are important uh, statistically uh, when you look across processes that show uh, that, that actually work um, in terms of outcomes for people uh, and for the issues that you're working on. We know that engagement processes that systematically represent relevant publics and stakeholders and their interests and processes that give those people transparent opportunities to co-produce outcomes uh, Opportunities that, that, that value multiple knowledge sources equally uh, and level, uh, level that uh, and that uh, give people the opportunity to structure that knowledge through structured information elicitation processes uh, are much more likely to deliver beneficial outcomes. The reasons for this uh, are, uh, I think, threefold. Engagement can enable learning uh, and changes in attitudes and values amongst your participants. Uh, and as a result of that learning, make their acceptance of outcomes more likely. Whether or not they agree, uh, they accept. Uh, engagement can lead to better informed decisions because you get a wider range of information inputs. Because of the way you've designed it, so you're getting everyone's knowledge and you're valuing that equally, uh, being critical equally about that and weighing it equally. And engagement can increase the likelihood that decisions are actually implemented because you've got the right people in the room who care about it, who are actually going to potentially then uh, implement that uh, at the end of the day. So design is important um, uh, and we know some of the key design variables and why those design variables are important. The third of my uh, factors now is power. And I believe that the effectiveness of engagement is significantly influenced by power dynamics. I think the number one reason uh, that I've seen processes go wrong um, around the world uh, that I've been involved with, whether it is as a facilitator or as a participant, sadly, uh, is power dynamics gone wrong, uh, not managed effectively. Uh, linked to this, uh, this um, uh, I believe that uh, we also need to understand and manage uh, the values of participants and their epistemologies. Uh, so social science jargon for, for the way in which these different people construct knowledge uh, and uh, what types of knowledge they would consider to be valid as part of a decision-making process or deliberative process. So poor management of, poor dynamic, of power dynamics um, is one of the key reasons for engagement actually failing to deliver outcomes. Even if you get everything else right, you can have the same process design in the same context, but with a different facilitator managing the power dynamics, you get wildly different outcomes because a good facilitator manages power. A poor facilitator does very little on that. 
So, of course, professional facilitation and mediation uh, are where you need to turn if you really want to reduce the likelihood of things going wrong, of things ending up in conflict, um, uh, and certainly where you already have a conflicted situation, um, as I was walking into in my, uh, my first story. It can really help reduce or resolve conflict by uh, just managing those dynamics between participants. My fourth and, uh, and final factor that I think can explain why engagement either works or fails is that participatory processes work differently and can lead to different outcomes when they operate over different scales. This is understanding, appreciating the role of spatial scale, but also temporal scale. So contextual values, such as preferences for one option or another, we know can change over relatively short timescales, perhaps even over the course of an interview, a, a workshop. You give people information, they reevaluate with their position, they change their values, they change their preference, their decision. But we also know that if you want to challenge uh, and shift much more deeply held values through the pathway to impact that you are pursuing, these are likely to change over much longer, uh, sometimes generational timescales. Spatial scale also matters, uh, I think is, is much more overlooked, uh, and this is fairly obvious, uh, but it's worth thinking about. Uh, engagement needs to be organised and conducted at a spatial scale that is relevant to the issue and to the jurisdictions of the authorities or institutions that can actually tackle it or, or make something happen. So, for example, there's no point organising a national process to decide where to put a park bench. And equally, it wouldn't be legitimate to make national decisions with the exclusive engagement of the community who bought the park bench. So, to conclude, let's return to my two stories. Um, and now we have this, hopefully, clearer thinking, this more theoretical understanding of why engagement works and fails. Let's have a think about my first uh, story. So this was designed at the appropriate local scale. Um, and I think in terms of, of temporal scale, this was probably appropriate for what we were trying to do. So I think we've got a tick box there. Um, but I've got a bunch of problems here. Um, I had a major issue with uh, researching my context. Uh, I tried my best, but there were three individuals there who I knew nothing about. Um, and as a result of that blind spot, I walked into uh, what ended up being a fairly embarrassing disaster. Uh, and in terms of the design, uh, because we hadn't done our research on the context, our design was not fit for that context. Uh, we should, in theory, have come up with a plan C from the outset and done that as our plan A that could have worked for uh, an illiterate audience. And I've certainly designed a number of processes uh, in countries where we knew that we would have a, a hardcore of people that would not be able to engage effectively through the written word. Um, and it is possible, but you need to know that and you need to design for that context. And we didn't, sadly. Uh, and then finally, the power dynamics were left uh, unmanaged uh, simply because uh, our poor facilitator was disabled by the, uh, the unfortunately strong accents in the room. Uh, and so the power dynamics got out of control, people got upset, arguments happened, things were said. Let's turn to the uh, My Knowledge Exchange workshop uh, and that story. 
um, and apply these same four variables to that to see if they can explain why this particular example worked. Everyone enjoyed it. Um, everyone got something out of it um, that they valued. Um, and, uh, and we certainly achieved what we wanted to achieve with, with our paper. First of all, it was an appropriate scale, this time a national scale rather than uh, a local uh, scale. Uh, we uh, had uh, a, a fairly long Delphi process to start with where we uh, got a panel uh, of these guys all together and people started to discuss this uh, through the written word before we even got into the room and then we had a full, well-designed two-day process. In terms of the context, we knew the context. We'd done a literature review uh, and we uh, identified the participants who we invited to that literature review, uh, to that workshop, through the literature review. So these were people who we knew were writing um, relevant material who could contribute to a research agenda. Uh, and we were therefore able to design uh, our workshop with a professional facilitator to that context for this specific group. Uh, in a way that was highly flexible, luckily for me, uh, uh, and uh, appropriate to achieve the outcomes that we want, wanted. Uh, when the most powerful person in the room stood up um, and uh, suggested that uh, things uh, went in a different direction, uh, that was, for me, uh, a very challenging situation, but for our facilitator, uh, a situation that she knew exactly how to handle, uh, and she managed those power dynamics incredibly sensitively in a way that enabled us to keep things on track, but actually to get the most out of that audience um, and to, to, to really benefit from their knowledge uh, as a result. So... What are the implications for our practice from this? Uh, I'm going to give you five things. Uh, I'm going to read these out from, from my paper. I tried to, to, to make these as generalizable and as simple to understand as, as possible. Uh, and I think that these five things are really valuable. They can really help you to uh, do better practice, to do better engagement, and to make sure that the people you engage with enjoy it and get something out of it, and that you get what you need out of the process uh, as well as a researcher. So the first is that you need to take time to fully understand the context in which you're working and based on that then to determine the appropriate type of engagement uh, from my wheel of participation, I suggest. Uh, you can choose however you want to choose it. Uh, and then once you've chosen uh, the type of engagement, you're then adapting that uh, to uh, your context. The second of uh, my implication for practice is that you need to get all affected parties involved in dialogue as soon as you possibly can to develop shared goals and to co-produce outcomes based on the most relevant sources of knowledge, valuing all forms of knowledge equally, weighing them critically equally. The third of, uh, of these uh, implications is about actively managing power dynamics, so important. And if you do this, you're making sure then that every participant's contribution is valued and everyone has an equal opportunity to contribute and be empowered. The fourth then is uh, about matching the length and frequency of engagement to your goals, recognising that changes in deeply held values that could perhaps be uh, the root of a conflict are likely to take much longer to shift than changes in preferences, uh, things that people might want to decide over the short term. And then finally, you need to make sure that you match the representation of interests and decision-making power to the spatial scale of the issues that you're working on.
So, to conclude, whether you define success or what works as, defeat, as achieving beneficial outcomes for the issues that you're working on as a researcher, or whether you define it as beneficial outcomes from the people that you are engaging with, so things like increased in trust, more positive working relationships, I think that having clearer thinking, having a more theoretically informed approach to uh, engagement uh, can improve the outcomes of the processes that we want to facilitate and empower the people that we work with and achieve the impacts that we as researchers hope to achieve efficiently, effectively and hopefully uh, enabling everyone to actually enjoy uh, the process. So I like to try and give you a practical thing that you can go away and practice or try out uh, over the next week. And I'd like you to have a, a think based on what I've told you from my latest paper uh, about whether you think these four factors can explain any of the experiences that you've had in the past, whether this is things you've tried to do um, and facilitate yourself, or whether these are things that you've been part of that have either worked and been really fun, really engaging, really successful, really achieved what they set out to achieve, or that have flopped. Uh, and to start thinking that bit more critically and embedding these ideas in your, uh, in your memory so that you can start then to uh, use these principles, uh, these theoretical insights to design better processes next time round. And think through my implications for practice and ask yourself the question, what could I do differently next time I engage with stakeholders or uh, with publics? Think about uh, the next meeting that you're planning to have. Think about the next pathway to impact that you're designing for a future research project. And think about how you can design with a theoretically informed approach a process that is actually going to work uh, and that you can confidently claim to your funders uh, and to the participants you're engaging will actually be useful uh, and enjoyable. Have a think about this, have a think about how you can apply this in your context and hopefully uh, this is something that will really empower you and empower the people that you work with and engage with. Mm -hmm.